Crossway Church Sermon Audio. We've been in a series in defense, defense of authority now for several weeks. This is the last sermon in this series. Uh, and this message will be focusing in on government, the, the, the subject of civil government and the Christians engaging with civil authority. And this certainly is a subject whose history stretches far and wide, and it is filled with drama. I mean, if you think about church history, some of the moments, the intersections at which church and state collide, it makes up some of the most violent, some of the most difficult, and also some of the most glorious moments in church history. It really represents such a storied, dramatic subject to talk about how the church is to engage with the state. It is such a, uh, really, if you think about it, all the questions, the host of questions that immediately leap off the page on our hearts when we begin to think about this. There's so much we have to understand. How is a Christian to engage the state? Uh, And it's not, you think about this subject, it's not one of those intersections of the Christian life that is quiet off the beaten track that only has one stop sign and there's a little traffic. Now, this is one of those intersections in your life, whether you know it or not. I hope by the end of this message you'll feel it more, the more of it. Is this is one of the busiest intersections you'll have to encounter in life. As a Christian, how we engage our culture, how we engage the government, society, the civil authorities that God has placed over us. It's constant. Think about it. It is a constant question we have to face. What am I supposed to do about this tax bill? You know, what do I do about this new code for building that now affects my plans to, to go forward with this addition? Or, you know, the different things that you're going to bump up against to, even driving the speed limit. Something some of us struggle a little more than others. I'm not going to call names, but I have to call my first, I think, if I would do that. But there are so many points at which you're going to have to cross this intersection between church and state, between your Christian walk and the civil government. It's constant. It's ongoing. It's a very busy, busy intersection. And you think of Acts chapter 4, we one particular example in Scripture where the civil authorities came right, right at the church. This is the time at which Peter and John appeared before the Sanhedrin, really the religious authorities in Palestine. And they confront John and Peter. They tell John and Peter, I quote, not to speak at all in the name of Jesus in verse 18, the book of Acts. And what is the Christian response in that moment, at that intersection, at that red light? What do we do? Do Do we put down the gospel? Do we cease speaking in the name of Jesus? Is that really what we're called to do in that moment? At that intersection? No. Peter and John give us the right Christian response by responding this way. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And respectfully, they disagree and they move on. They say, we're not going to obey you. And that was the right response in that situation. The Christian response, when confronted and told not to preach in the name of Jesus, the only right response is, I'm sorry, I will not do that. Now, are we to conclude because of Acts chapter 4 that our regular ongoing interactions with government ought to be one of resistance? That somehow the Christian is to, at all times, in all situations, at every intersection possible, resist the government because the government is evil or corrupt or whatever names we would choose to call it? No, certainly not. The the, the Scriptures provide us a host of appropriate interactions with the government. It's not going to be always just run through the stop sign and say, no, we're not going to obey that. We're not going to stop preaching the gospel. It's going to also include yielding. It's going to include stopping altogether. It's going to include backing up. It's going to include all kinds, a host of interactions that the Scripture provides us with clear instructions. And we're going to get into that in in 1 Peter chapter 2. So just to be clear, there are many, many intersections that God is going to call each of us to have to face, even today, 
in our interactions with civil government. Unless you want to live off the grid in the cold Arctic, you're going to have to face off with this reality. And let's do so with the help of God's word. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You with me? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come in this moment before your word that was just read publicly. These are your words, Father. And we pause and we acknowledge, Lord, that this is our authority for life. This is a foundation on which to build. This is food on which to feast, to bring sustenance. Or this is light for our path. This is a shield in times of war. And it is a sword. Lord, that cuts back the lies of the enemy. Lord, we acknowledge this is your word and we ask that you would do your work by the Spirit that not a single thing Not a single part to your word would would fall to the ground, but rather would bear fruit. It would bring forth much fruit in our hearts, Lord. Please give us good soil this morning. Lord Jesus, help the hearts of your people to have soft, warm hearts to receive truth and to be changed. And for any here who do not call on the name of the Lord, we pray that you'd use this time in your word to reveal to them they need a Savior. For God is holy and you are just And you will come to punish the wicked. And Lord, we need a Savior. Please impress that on unbelieving hearts today. Lord, use this time for your your pleasure and glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. We're going to be talking about rules of the road, okay? And the theme of this message is if we're going to honor the true king, we must live godly lives under all human authority. If we're going to honor the true king, we must live godly lives under all human authority. And we're talking about these intersections with human authority. And what are we supposed to do? What are the rules of the road? And here are the rules we'll be looking at. Number one, remember the true king. Number two, honor all underlings. Number three, when underlings call to sin, follow the true king. And number four, be known for good things. So these are the rules of the road. Okay? Let's head into our first point. Remember the true king. Peter uh, spoke several weeks ago, not the Apostle Peter, but uh, Pastor Peter <laughs> spoke several. I have to clarify if you're preaching from the book of 1 Peter, you've got to be clear. Uh, Pastor Peter spoke on this subject in this first point. Remember the true king. Uh, a couple weeks ago in the message entitled King Jesus, I would encourage you to, to, to go back and listen revisit your notes because we're going to briefly touch on this point here now uh, but you can get more details from Pete's message but in that message and in what we're looking at here this morning it really is a great and orienting truth if there is a, a north on the compass for the believer it's this it's this is that we have a true king and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ and if we get that north on the map south, east, and west, we can figure the rest out, right? If you know where north is, you can place it all. You can figure out exactly where you are. You can figure out exactly which way you need to go. And this is, of all things, the orienting truth for the believer. This is the north star, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king, the true king. And we're called, as a rule of this road, engaging governments on this earth the first thing we need to remember is our true king. When you pull up to the intersection of the state, we remember our true king. It's a call to this, to remember our true allegiance. Who is our true and highest allegiance as a believer? What is my true country? 
Where is my citizenship really? Those kind of things. This is what remembering our true king should dial up. I belong to Christ. Christ is the true and only king whose government shall see no end. Upon whom the government rests on his shoulders, right? King Jesus. So I remember this, and I remember from whom I come from. I remember like a parent dropping off their son or their daughter, their teen, at an important event, and they say as the child's leaving the vehicle, remember what? Remember who you, who you are, right? Remember what family you're from. Remember not to bring our family's name to shame, right? It's in those moments that we have to remember, in those important moments, who we're from. And more importantly, really, where are we going to? Who we belong to? Like, where are we going to return home to? Well, the kings of this earth, the government authorities and the civil structures that we need to face day after day, intersection after intersection, they are temporary at best. But we have to face our true king. And his rules, his law is permanent. And not a word, a stroke, a single dot or dash shall pass away from his law. But the human laws... The Constitution of the United States, all these things, it's all going to burn. The Lord Jesus Christ, His government shall not pass. That's our first allegiance, our highest flag. And if we remember this, it's going to bring, again, that idea of orientation. It sets the landscape upright. All of a sudden, the geography, we can understand. How am I supposed to go through this? Well, if we remember, if just one thing, remember your true king. It will lead you. The rest shall fall into place. The rest shall follow. Remember, seek first his kingdom. Right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the rest of these things shall be added unto you. So says our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it applies to this very truth to remember the true king. And what does this do for this, this guiding principle? Well, it's going to guide us and guard us really from so many different errors. I mean, just a couple, a smattering here of things it'll protect us from. It'll protect us from investing too much hope in our current government. You know, whether good or bad, whether pretty or ugly, it prevents the Christian heart from investing too much authority, hope, and expectation on any human institution whether local, state, federal, international, you name it. This truth tethers us. It reminds us, my true allegiance, my true king is Christ. My hopes must be in him. He is my king. It also prevents us from becoming engaged in the political process with the wrong motives. You know, if, if someone enters into the political foray, foray and tries to work in that with the wrong motives, without faith, without the acknowledgement that the deepest need for every human is not a good government, humanly speaking. It's a government that only Christ can provide. If that person goes in without acknowledging that or believing that, they will invest too much authority and really too much in themselves to somehow be savior to a nation. No. If anyone's going to engage the political process in faith, it requires an acknowledgement that this is my second citizenship at best. My first citizenship is in heaven. And this kingdom that I serve now and that I'm engaging in the process with, it's going to pass. But his kingdom endures forever. So it prevents us from having the wrong really the wrong motives in engaging the political systems and, the, and really the government. And it also prevents us from depression and despair, right? When you read the news, you're reading of all the t- kind of the tumultuous swings of political activity and the government doing this or spending on that or this is going on here, wars, rumors of wars, etc., etc. We can easily be depressed, right? Despondency can settle in when we recognize just how awful and broken this world is and the world governments and what they're spending their money on. It prevents us being tethered to this truth that we have a true king. It tethers us. It gives us hope. It gives us hope that works us through the the news, the headlines, that works us through all the pendulums swinging in the political process. Even when the news is so terrible on this national stage or terrible internationally, we have a hope And that is that Christ is returning. And everything is under his feet. 
That is the Christian hope. That's our security. Therefore, I have no reason to be afraid or I have no reason to be despairing right now because he is sovereign. He sits on his throne. Nothing, nothing gets in his way, right? The Lord does on earth whatever he pleases. And no one, no man can thwart his plans. Therefore, I have hope and I will not despair. That's the Christian response. This is what this truth does. And also, it prevents us from caving into the fear of worldly authority when called on to compromise. You know, there'll be times, and we've all faced this, when we're being pressured by the world at large, and certainly the governments, it's part of this pressure, in trying to draw us away from the gospel, trying to draw us away from truth, and trying to help us join with the masses, Just believe whatever you want to believe. Just love and be tolerant of all people equally. That all belief systems, everything goes to one place, right? All streams lead to God. Well, the Christian will not live with that. We will not abide by that. We will not for a moment in truth, in Scripture, agree with such sentiments. And it will require courage. It will require courage for us to stand and say, no, I'm sorry. Respectfully, but no. No! (laughs) With an exclamation point. And it's going to take that kind of courage and to have our tether to this truth that the true king is in heaven. It helps us that we don't compromise. That we don't give in to earthly kings where we shouldn't. So to gain social or political advantages. So who is the true king? It's Christ our Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our true king. So let me ask you a couple questions to application. How loud are your statements concerning social or political issues, maybe on Facebook or in person, interacting with people? How loud, how clear are your statements? What are your statements? What are you valuing or treasuring most? What would people walk away if they would read your Facebook feed or they would interact with you in person, particularly in a political time? Would they be able to read between the lines and say, this guy's first allegiance is Christ? By the passion, by the tone, by the way he's carrying his arguments, by the fact that he's more concerned about heavenly things? Could you, let's weigh through the way we think about this. What would we be known for? What are our, our highest allegiances? At least the ones that people are perceiving. That's important to understand. What do people perceive? What are they hearing? Maybe that's a good question to ask a friends or a family member. Is, is, am I known? Let me say this. Am I known to love Jesus? Am I known to honor the true king? Because really that's all that matters. When all is said and done, my allegiance to Christ is what matters most. So let that be loudest. People of God, hear me. Let that be loud and clear. Let it be written over your life. This person loves Jesus. And let everything else come secondary, far secondary, okay? So let's go forward to our second point, rules of the road. Remembering the true king, then we're going to go to honor all underlings. So we pull up to the stop sign. What are we supposed to do here? This is a a moment where I've got to deal with the state, whatever law or code or person or personality, whatever it might be. We have to figure out what are we supposed to do? Well, first we remember the true king. Secondly, we need to remember to honor all underlings. So in light of the first point, it could be argued that this second point is not necessary. Is it biblical thinking to conclude that our highest good, if it is, like if this is true, that our highest good and the most important thing we need to do is remember our true king, does that mean then we don't really need to worry about this world, its governing authorities? We're really free of them. We don't need to consider them. In fact, we could blow that stop, not, stop sign in the name of Jesus. What is, is that the right response, right? Is that what the Christian, because we now belong to King Jesus, we have no other kings. I will have no other king. In fact, I might as well just start my own compound, you know? Get enough canned goods and rifles and we're good to go. Is that the Christian response in light of the first point? If we only have one king and the true king is all that matters, is that all there is? The rule of the road? No. <laughs> the problem with that kind of like monastic or the being a monk or that kind of really extreme libertarianism, it's unbiblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
We just read in God's word from 1 Peter 2. That's clearly not what Peter the apostle, nor Paul, nor Jesus, nor anyone in Scripture is teaching. That a Christian's response to the world is separate. Create a compound. So we can keep our Bibles and our life the way we want it. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. 2 Peter is very clear here. 1 Peter is clear here. Verse 17. Look with me. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. I mean, it's all mixed in together. It's all there. What we're supposed to do, talking about trusting and loving and fearing God is right alongside honor the emperor. In Peter's mind, they're both heading in the same direction. They're not mutually exclusive. That if I honor the true king, therefore I must slap every fake king or or secondary king. Where any civil authority in this world, I thumb my nose at them, but I give all glory to Jesus. No, it's both honor and fear God and honor the emperor. That's what Peter's telling us. That's what Peter's telling us. These are not mutually exclusive activities or attitudes for the Christian. They coexist. We cannot do one and not the other. Biblical Christianity will not sing to the compounds we will go. To live our lives the way we please without any meddling from that taxation, taxa, uh, taxing government authorities or whatever the case may be. So let's get to the root of why this is the case. That's important to understand why this is important. To honor the underlings. Well, if you go back to Jesus' last moments on earth, really here we are on Palm Sunday. The Sunday that we recognize the, the, the Savior's walking into Jerusalem and the crowds laying their palms on the ground, their jackets, their cloaks, so that Jesus comes on, a, on the foal of a donkey, right? As a symbolism of, of a different kind of king. A very different kind of king that this world, that, that Jerusalem would ever know. He would ride into that city and then within a, a few days' time, the Roman authorities of whom the disciples paid taxes to, their tax dollars subsidized the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The tax money of Jesus and his disciples actually subsidized the soldiers who crucified our Savior. Talk about a mix. Talk about a very difficult Situation, But yet, in the midst of that, Jesus speaks to Pilate. You remember the moment in the book of John, chapter 19. Jesus stands having a conversation with Pilate. Pilate's, I mean, he's wrestling. What do I do with this man? His wife has this dream of having nothing to do with this man. That's what the wife tells Pilate. And Pilate's in consternation, trying to understand, how do I, how do I, most, you know, with political expedience, how do I work through this so I don't lose my head? And in the midst of that conversation, Pilate argues to Jesus, do you not realize that I have authority to set you free? And what Jesus says is so telling. Verse 11. It's John chapter 19, verse 11. He says, you would have no authority over me at all. Unless... It had been given you from above at all. It's very clear. It's very clear. The Apostle Paul, in a very similar way, echoes that in chapter 13 of Romans. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is God's word. So at the intersection of church and state, we must heed this rule to honor all underlings because God put them there. God put them there at every level of human government. Think about this. Every, from the emperor who is supreme to the governors whom he set in place, down to the PennDOT employee who takes your picture 
for your license so you look like a criminal. <laughs> you would think with modern equipment they would have some way of spicing that stuff up. But my, I just got a picture done about a week ago. I literally look like a convict. So if I hand my ID over to people who are like, what would you do, you know? Listen, down to that little room where PennDOT makes you get pictures done. we got to take a number, get in line, sit down for an hour and a half until they call your number. That is a situation in which the authority of God rests. Think about that. Every level of human authority, from an emperor down to the most local, and in this case, Pennsylvania Department of Transportation state employee, authorized by the governor himself, to take your blessed photo. They are sanctioned. Think about this. And Paul and Jesus are saying this. They are there because God gave them authority. However little their authority might seem to be. They're there. Regardless, with authority that God gave them. And it is right and good for believers to acknowledge that and to abide by it. So that when I get my number... I don't just throw it on the ground and rush to the front and get tased. And I would deserve every second of it, right? Yes. Everyone in the room would be like, yeah, do it again. No. God calls us to obey. God calls us to submit, to honor the emperor as an underling of God himself, one who has received and been granted authority from God. We have to get that. The Bible does not teach us to create compounds and escape government and to build up a resistance against government. No. It says honor, submit, follow. It's an important distinction. It's very important for us to get this. So this will keep us from many errors. First of all, this will prevent us from, from giving little, too little thought to, to government. I mean, some of us might be in this room who don't give this any thought. And I think it's a good challenge to us to remember we must think. We must honor. And in the words of Paul, we must pray. Nope. Hey, the king of love, my shepherd is. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says this. I'll read it to you. So we, we need to think about this. It's not an option. First Timothy 2, first of all then, I urge, there it is, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The call of Scripture is that we engage on this, that we're thoughtful about this, that we think, that we pray, that we act in such a way that we're honoring the emperor. That when we go through that intersection, we don't just carelessly whip through. You don't do the Philly roll, which is you barely stop. You just kind of keep going. No, you stop. You engage. You look both directions, left, right. You think. You consider. And in this case, Paul calls us to pray. To pray for them. That the will of God might be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right? So may the Lord help us to remember and to prevent us from not giving deference, giving right honor to underlings. And it also keeps us, if we remember to honor the underlings, it also keeps us from resisting God-given authorities without appropriate cause. Or, or in some ways, uh, resisting authorities on issues that aren't biblical or aren't important. It's possible for us to take up really a flag and plant it on a hill that really doesn't matter as believers, especially in America. Democratic societies, we can all go our separate ways and find our own little hills to die on. And our culture at large will celebrate that. But let's be careful. Let's make what is important, important, and not, not other things. Let's make Christ, his name, the gospel, the kingdom of God. Let's put these things on the highest hill with the highest flag, and let's hold high allegiance to that and fight for that and resist on those things. But on lesser things, let's hold it rightly. That's the challenge, I think, and this will pre prevent us from doing that, making that mistake. And then one critical note I want to end on this point here is, is to remember in our doing this, in our honoring of the, the world's governments, 
as we're, we're dealing with local, state, federal, employees, presidents, whatever. As we do so, we do so for the Lord's sake. I'm not doing that just for the sake of the people involved. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. We subject ourselves to honor the emperor. Why? Because the father wants us to do it for his glory. So in a sense, not only are we robbing that emperor of honor if we're not honoring them, we are robbing God from glory. God decrees that his glory, he receives glory and honor as his children obey his word, as his children go forth and honor and obey and subject themselves under civil authority. So it is for the Lord's sake. If anything else, believers, hear me. If you love Jesus, you will love and you will follow and you will submit and you will subject yourself and you will honor civil authority. If you love Jesus, you will do that. Do you get that? They're not mutually exclusive. It's one. It's God is calling us to honor him as we honor human authority that he has put in place. So may the Lord help us to remember that, that it's for the Lord's sake. Oh, Lord. Brings us to our third rule of the road, which is when underlings call to sin, follow the true king. And on this point, certainly a, a question may come to mind, and it's right. It's a good question. It's what happens if civil authority comes up against my true and highest authority in Christ? What if the civil authority, the government, whether federal, state, local, whatever, What if they call me to sin? What if they tell me, for instance, in Acts 4, that I shouldn't preach the gospel? Does that mean that we need to follow 1 Peter chapter 2, lockstep, that I just need to submit, follow, subject myself to this governing authority and stop preaching Jesus? No, certainly not. And that's where this rule the road needs to come to play, is that there will be times and have always been times in human history We're fallen, sinful, broken human government who gets it wrong all the time and is influenced by evil and does much evil. As much good as a government can do, it can do worse. It can do worse evil. That it's in these things that that the the history of the church where the Christians have had to wrestle with and and learn how to really how to disagree and how to resist government and authority. It's a tough road to walk. So let's look at this question because there will be times that you and I, due to following Jesus, will have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And how do we work through that? How do we understand when that's the right time to do that? Because it is possible, I tell you again, it's possible for you to come to the conclusion, time to resist, when the Lord would say, no, you got that wrong. (laughs) That wasn't the time to resist. That's not the issue to die on. No There are times that we can get this wrong. So it's important that we think biblically, that we approach these intersections very carefully. Very carefully, especially if we're considering resistance. Because that requires taking what Peter says or what Romans 13 says and not doing it. So if we're going to disobey Scripture, in a sense, if we could say it that way, if you're going to disobey Romans 13, which you're not really if it's in the right cases, but if you're going to get even close to thinking about that, we have to go very slowly, right? Thoughtfully, considerately, carefully, spiritually, with the Spirit's help and in much prayer and in the church together. We don't do this alone. You might be an American, but we can't do this alone. I'm going to underline that. You can't do this alone. It's not meant to be done alone. You don't resist authority by yourself. You don't decide, I'm going to die on this hill by myself without the church. No, we do this together. We stand together and we'll resist together. That's what we're called to do. So for an individual Christian to decide one day, this issue bothers me about the government. I'm going to resist. That is not what the scripture shows us. We do it together. And that's how we keep one another safe. That's how we make sure this is indeed a hill to die on. Because, again, left to ourselves, we'll probably choose the wrong hills. But we need each other. We need the pastoral team. We need encouragement and edification and accountability from one another. That we're making these decisions together. 
And that gives us, therefore, confidence so that if one of us does resist and one of us is thrown into prison for what we've done or something awful that the government does, that we can all stand behind you and support you and love you in the midst of it. And we can say, that brother is suffering for Jesus. That's important, that we do this together, that we do this all lock step as the church of Jesus Christ. So let's look at a particular example. might help break it down a bit. That might be, I'm, I'm just making up an example here, where an intersection, where the church is being told by the state to do something sinful. All right? And this example is, let's say, uh, in this example, it's, it's a Christian can struggle with paying taxes because of the government subsidizing abortion. You hear the government, the federal government, as you know, is giving millions of dollars, whether it be to Planned Parenthood or similar programs that are, are funding, funding the killing of babies. And that's horrific. Think about that. That you and me, when we do our taxes, monies are actually being given to the death of people, of babies. That's, that's horrible. And that's, that's a, a moment of, really, think about it, of conscience, you know, the conscience to kind of work through that. That's a hard issue at stake. So what do we do about that? How do we attack that question? Should a Christian, therefore, should a Christian pay taxes? Should we resist the government on that point because the government is going to spend my money to kill people? Should I not pay my taxes on that? Well, this, let's break this down. How should we approach this? How do we approach this intersection of question? Well, it's going to a couple of things. First and foremost, we're going to start with Scripture, Okay. We approach any and all these things, every single one of these kind of issues. We go to the Bible. We go together, remember? We go together, and we go to the Bible. Because the Bible is God's truth and word, and it is the light to our feet. It is all that we have that gives us what we need to do next. All right? This is the road guide here, the guide for the road. So in this case, we have to ask the question, is the issue on hand one that is of God's moral law and gospel priorities and not simply a minor concern or something that can be considered more preferential. Like, I just don't like paying my taxes or I, can't exp- I, I hate the fact that the government expects this of me. Like, that would be personal things. But we're talking about, is this issue that we're dealing with, this question, should a Christian pay taxes if the government aborts, helps to abort children? Uh, we have to ask the question, does it have to do directly with God's moral law and with gospel priorities? the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified for the salvation of sinners. And in this case, yes. Okay, so the, the issue is at stake, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, right? The Christian holds high God's commands. We say, that is good, that is right, that is true. Anything that says otherwise, we will have an issue with it. In this case, the federal government. So we have an issue. The government is subsidizing the abortion of children. We have an issue with that. That's a good thing. In some ways, we'll shake our fist. How dare you, in the name of good, kill children? And it's right and good for the Christian to stand up and to say no loudly. But the second point to this, so the first one is asked, is this a question of moral implications, of God's moral law, and it is a question of gospel priority, having to do with Jesus Christ and him crucified? And we answered that yes. The next question then is, well, is there scriptural warrant? Is there, is there passages in scripture that would illustrate and give us examples of how we should walk through this? The dealing with taxation and, and immoral governments who are corrupt and doing evil things with money. What do we do about that? Does the scripture speak to that? Are there examples? Is there warrant within the Bible? And in this case, yes, there is. So we can go to Mark 22. We can, I'm sorry, Mark 12. We can go to Matthew 22 both having to do with Jesus' famous words. You know these words well. Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. That story that is told by the gospel writers of Jesus engaging with the question, is it right to pay taxes? All right? So we do. We have two cases in Scripture that speak directly to this issue. So good. All right, good. We have its moral concern. It has to do with a priority that that is very important and dear to the Christian heart. Secondly, There is warrant in Scripture. There's something to go to. We can see an example played out and understand and glean from that. How should we pull through this intersection? Okay? So the second point is this script isn't in Scripture. It certainly is. And we can draw from that. Therefore, the third point here, 
is based on the biblical material we have, we have to build a biblical conviction. So we go to the scriptures, we find precedent in the scripture for what believers have done, what we should do in the light of God, the truth of God. And here's where we build a biblical conviction. In this case, what we're going to conclude is this. I must render to the IRS what belongs to the IRS, regardless of what they spend it on. Same as in Jesus' own example. Jesus makes it very clear. Caesar was a ruthless, wicked emperor. Government monies went to untold horrors, including his own crucifixion. And yet Jesus, Jesus teaches the disciples, and therefore us, that we should go faithfully to pay our dues, to pay our taxes, because, because we are not complicit in the government's corruption by giving money to it through taxation. That's the point there. Is Jesus is saying, you're not complicit. If the government demands this, you have to honor the emperor, whether he's wicked or righteous. You've got to honor him. You've got to pay your taxes. But you're not complicit in what the government does with that money. Okay? That's why Jesus tells us, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And he instructs the disciples and therefore us to go forth and do that. So it would be wrong, therefore, to conclude in this question at this intersection that a Christian would be sinning by paying taxes because tax money is going to abortion, okay? So I hope this example kind of furnishes some wheels to the road here, some rubber on the road. It is a, obviously, there's a lot more we could go into, a lot more ethical concerns, questions about this example, and there's a host of other issues you could have drawn from. But based on what we see here, hopefully it provides you with at least, we need to go to the Bible, okay? This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to go to Scripture, going together, and we're trying to build a biblical conviction on what is most important and what I should be doing in this situation at this intersection. Is this God's call to blow the stop sign? Is that what the Scripture tells me to do? Don't pay your taxes? All right, we're going. Step on the gas. Or is it screech halt? Do your duty. And I believe according to Scripture, Matthew 12, or Mark 12, Matthew 22, we are to step on the brakes and obey. We're to follow through. We're to do. Now, that also means that we could take, as Scripture would teach, we need to make issue with abortion. We have a voice in our society to engage civil government on these things. So we should make a stink about it. Because there are children who are dying. And there are legal and good ways and biblical ways we can go about protesting that and making our voice be heard and and seeking change. Seeking that kind of change. So, anyway. I do want to touch back on that point about we do this together. We don't disobey the government by ourselves. That, I, I cannot say that loudly enough. Church of God. We are a people We're not individual citizens. We are citizens together of the kingdom of God. We all must be lockstep when we disobey the government. We must be there together. Safety in numbers, right? We will hold and support one another in the worst case scenario when they tell us to stop preaching the gospel and they take our building from us and they force us to do certain things. We're going to be there together and by grace, we we will be sustained. We will resist We will do whatever it takes to uphold the name of Jesus high and to keep one another in the faith. That's what we're going to do together. And I know you'll be there by God's grace and we will be there together. We will help. We will fight. But not with weapons, certainly made with hands. Not with rifles, not with guns. But in faith, we'll trust, we'll endure. And we'll do it together. We'll do it together. And the Lord will be so pleased with our efforts. And this brings us to our final point in the last few moments here. Be known for good things. Rules of the road. We've talked through, remember the true king. Remember what our citizenship really truly is. We're in heaven. Secondly, we're calling to mind that we need to honor the underlings. Thirdly, we need to also be aware that when underlings call to sin, we need to follow the true king. We go with the true king when the underling tempts us to sin. 
or calls us to sin. And finally, be known for good things. So what impression, I think this is part of this text here in chapter 2, you can pick up this idea that there is an impression we should be leaving with people around us. There should be an impression that you and I, when we're around unbelievers, whether it's civil authorities or just your neighbor, they should be able to pick up the scent of something. And they do, by the way, right? We all have a smell. I'm not talking about literal olfactory gland smells. I'm talking about the smell of your spirit. You know, Paul talks about it this way in Corinthians. He talks about the aroma of death. Christ is the aroma, the aroma of death to those who are perishing, but the aroma of life to those who believe. So there's a smell that Christians give off, if I could say it that way. There's a smell that you should be lingering when you leave a room. It should linger when people talk about you and they smell it. What do you think that should be? Well, I think in this text we read very, very simply, it should be, we should be known for good things. We should be known for good things. It's not enough, for instance, it's not enough that we just, that we love Jesus. Mano y mano, man on man, you know, just me, me and him together. That's all I care about. And that's all that's really necessary for the Christian walk is that me and Jesus are okay. He's just all right with me. That's not enough. What matters, and this, it really does matter what other people think. Do you realize that? Because that's what God's saying here <laughs> in his word. It matters. Your reputation, whether on paper or in person, your reputation matters to God. What other people say about you when you leave the room, that lingering odor, what is it that you leave behind? That matters to God because that's what God is saying in his word. So therefore, when we talk about following and honoring underlings, part of what we're talking about is that our conduct, our, our works, the, the aroma we leave behind is one of good things. We're doing, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And Paul's, I mean, Peter's telling us there that you and I have a responsibility to act that we're drawing honor. That people look at, they look at you and they say, that's an honorable person. That person carries life with honor and dignity. That you're honorable. That is the concern of Peter. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So it does matter. Our works, the way we live. In short, we should be honoring those in authority in concrete and observable ways. Honoring the emperor is not just in your mind, okay, fine, I'll pay my stinking taxes. No, that's not it. That's not enough. Peter's saying here, it needs to be concrete, observable, good, honorable living, godly living in the presence of Gentiles and unbelievers and certainly among the brothers. So that your reputation on paper and your reputation whenever you leave the room, people are talking. And what they say is good. That your conduct is good, honorable. So we need to carry ourselves in such a way that it's observable because that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. It truly does. And that's what verse 16 draws our attention. Turn there. Actually, I just flashed it right here. Ready? There we go. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as those who are people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. And here's where the gospel is so wonderful. This is exactly what the gospel has done. Think about it. We have been emancipated. We were once slaves to sin. We were once dead in sin. There are so many labels the Bible applies to sinful people. We were broken, busted, dead, cold. And then Christ comes into this world to submit himself under the governing authorities, only then to be crucified by them. Why? So that you and I could be set free. That you and I could be free. No longer slaves. No longer living for ourselves, but living for him who died for us and then was raised. That's the new life we've been given by the Spirit. The gospel has come. It's been proclaimed. And I want to make it clear to those who are in this room who do not know Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need a Savior. 
You need to be saved from God. There is a day coming where his punishment will no longer sleep. He is coming to pour out wrath on this world. Anyone who does not call on the name of the Lord, anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, they will perish. You will pay for your sin. And I want to call you this morning to put your hope in Jesus. There's only one way to God. There's only one Savior. It is Jesus Christ. And it's very simple. You call on His name. Like a child caught in a bear trap, you cry out, Jesus, save me. And the Lord hears those who call. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord will save the sinner who knows they are sinful and broken and need a Savior. So I would, I would petition that you would become a Christian today. Believe. Confess the name of the Lord. And then be baptized in his name. And become a member of the church. And join with us in the worship of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I conclude on this point. The worship team can come forward. The gospel sets us free and sets us free to do what? It's this. To live in the way that pleases the Lord. We've been set free. There's this curious new joy. This feeling in your heart. This, this, this new nature that God gives you that all of a sudden what you thought was dumb and not necessary and boring by honoring civil authorities. Even you maybe you complained or grumbled about it in the past or you had a hatred of those things. All of a sudden... There is a new heart given to you by the Spirit. You desire to please them, to honor them, to honor the Lord. You want to stay in between the lines all of a sudden, right? And that's the Spirit of God giving you the grace to desire what is right and true and good. To be free. And we're not to use our freedom to spend it on our sinful passions. But we're to do so to obey, to submit, to honor our Lord and our Savior and those people whom he has put in over us in authority. So let's do that this morning. So whatever we need to repent of, if it is of our grumbling and complaining, if it, if, if it is of the fact that your reputation is not where it needs to be with unbelievers, go correct that. Repent. Repent of whatever your reputation happens to be right now. Repent. Turn and believe for each of us that we would have the scent of Jesus Christ wherever we go that his allegiance would be highest in our hearts that we would go and obey governing authorities and if the day comes that we need to resist the day comes we come to that stop sign and the Lord says go by his grace and with great courage oh Lord Jesus help us on that day that we do so together that we do so carefully and we do so for his glory come what may Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.